Well, hello. Welcome to the American Writers uh, 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Um, so this will be the, the last episode for a while in my series on the American Civil War. I was originally going to do all four volumes of the Library of America's anthology, but uh, decided uh, kind of recently to take a little bit of a break from this series and, and go back to some novels, um, mostly because I've been reading a lot of novels lately, and I think that might be a little... It might, it might be a nice change of pace for a while. So I'll, I'll do work on some Sinclair Lewis, Babbitt, and Main Street, do those novels. Maybe I'll, I'll pick up some other novels and then get back to this, this nonfiction stuff. I think I'm dwelling too, a little bit too much in nonfiction lately, except for the Lovecraft stuff. Um, but, I, you know, what really brought me to this podcast was looking at fiction and stories and, and things like that. And as much as I like some of these other uh, these documents and this other type of writing, I think I think fiction is... It's something I want to return to, um, but anyways, let's uh, let's talk about this. So this is the seventh uh, uh, episode covering the second volume, uh, basically, which covers 1862. Uh, so we're dealing with uh, basically December and a little bit of January of 63. Uh, the you know they, the way they divided this up is really just touches a little bit into 63 but mostly it's uh dealing with february or december of 62 and that really means the battle of fredericksburg which uh was a pretty uh traumatic battle for the union side uh you had the victory at antietam but then you had the change of command you had a new general burnside who didn't want to be there who didn't want the job and then he uh you know had this horrific battle where he moved on the confederate positions and it was really one-sided conflict and uh, heavy heavy union casualties and in the middle of winter uh really dramatic kind of world war one type of type of stuff maybe a precursor to what we would see later in the war like with the siege of vicksburg not the siege of vicksburg uh, the siege of petersburg or even uh pickett's charge is kind of a reverse uh uh Battle of Fredericksburg in a way, um, but one of the the most demoralizing um, battles fought by the Union in the early half of the war. So we have that, and then we have the a lot of a lot of the documents in this section deal with that uh, battle. So we'll kind of zip through those pretty quickly, um, and then we'll there's some politics stuff too. We're dealing with Ambrose Burnside and some some kind of from my point of view a little kind of esoteric. Uh, cabinet politics, which is another thing that I'm not too interested in, but um, people have written about it. So that's dealing with like the Seward and Chase difficulties and the Seward's efforts to resign and Lincoln not taking that resignation. So there's that kind of stuff going on. Um, a lot of stuff about the despair in the North and the aftermath of the Battle of Fredericksburg. But of course, I think what's really heroic about this uh this month of history is, is Lincoln's insistent on standing by the Emancipation Proclamation and issuing the final uh, Emancipation Proclamation. Of course, the one issued earlier after the Battle of Antietam was merely preliminary. It was like a warning that this would be done in, uh, I think it was January 1st, 1863, and he does it. So we get that document as well. Um, yeah, let's let's jump into these. The first we have is uh, another Edward Porter Alexander um, document we've seen a couple of these before it's from a book he wrote later called uh fighting for the confederacy and as we've seen before i think we saw his him writing earlier about the seven days um battles he's one thing i really noticed here this is his account of the battle of fredericksburg and 
Um, he does give some respect for McClellan, I suppose. And his departure, he kind of sees as he's presenting here as an advantage for, for the Confederacy. And there is hints here in these documents that of how popular McClellan was among the troops and how this handing over of command was not uh, the most popular decision uh, among soldiers, at least at this point. And that, that certainly would clearly change by 64 when soldiers voted overwhelmingly for Lincoln. Um, but he talks that. But what I really want to say about this document and maybe his the fighting for the Confederacy as a whole. Maybe I'd have to read the whole book. If I, I probably won't ever do that. But if you ever read the whole book, you might get a better picture of this. I get the sense of Alexander putting himself in conversations and near decision makers. I get the sense. I don't know how much of this. Is, you know, maybe there's no good reason maybe to doubt him on this. He was a colonel, so he would have been privy to have access to commanders. But a lot of this document does. Uh, focus on the, the, the stars of the war, I suppose, from the Confederate point of view. You know, people like uh, Jackson and, and Lee and people are in the story. And and he's trying to put himself in those conversations. And he reconstructs these conversations. So I don't know if there's a little bit of, of myth-making. He's kind of elevating himself um, by putting himself next to these, these uh, larger figures uh, of the Southern cause putting himself in the central point of view, I suppose, of it. There's also a lot, uh, and we saw this before in the Seven Days document he wrote, um, which is all part of the same book, so it's not surprising, is that a lot of armchair generaling going on where he says like, oh, if I was the Union, I would have done it this way, or this was the decision they made. And it's, you know, it it's not that useful, I suppose, but um, I think there's a lot of this maybe going on in the aftermath of the war, um, as it, it for a long time, it was the central event of American history, right? There was no other, and even today, I don't think there's any other war that comes close to the Civil War of being, you know, in the American head, maybe World War II, to a certain degree, um, but more so than any other conflict, this one is in Americans' headspace, and it still is. You can see, just go to YouTube, Look at the people talking about the American Civil War, and there's all sorts of back and forth. And lost causes are showing up, and a lot of you know, just still a lot of interest in the war and still a lot of, I think, armchair generaling going on, uh, especially by lost causers. It seems that's a, a, a fetish of theirs, I suppose. And Alexander's probably closer to that position than than um, than being totally neutral about it. Um, but yeah, he some um, listen to this. He says, then the Federals at last resorted to what they should have done at first before daylight in the morning. They ran two or three regiments down on pontoon boats, blah, blah, blah. You know, he's, he's, he's saying this is what they should have done if this had been done differently. If someone had listened to me, maybe the war battle would have turned out differently and the war turned out differently, which I think is just a, I don't know, maybe there are moments in history. Maybe if, uh, when that matters, maybe if Darius had done something different at Gogamella, maybe, who knows, there would have been a entirely different change in history. But my sense of the Civil War is, it was a slog, and it was never going to be won by a single battle. It was going to be won by the application of force, constant pressure, what Grant and Lincoln would really commit to in 64. Um, but anyways, it's, you know, Alexander is, is what he is. It's, this document has its uses, I suppose, but it, it is um, not the most compelling. You don't get the grit and dirt and blood of battle. We get uh, someone really interested in the tactics and the strategies of it all. Um, all right, but uh, that's our first real document about the Battle of Fredericksburg. 
Then we have Samuel W. Fisk writing to the Springfield Republican, which is now this guy uh, Fisk had sat out the battle because he was sick, but he still observed some of it. And this document, like several we're going to look at, uh, really focus on the horrors of the battle. And I think the editors here, the editor made a choice to use this battle as a way to get a window into the, the hospitals and the like the piles of limbs and the, the decisions that nurses have to make. It's, for instance, when we see Alcott's um, uh, hospital diaries, um, hospital sketches, which is a good book uh, if, you haven't, if you haven't read it. I did a series on Alcott earlier in this podcast, but we didn't look at hospital sketches. I don't know if Library of America published it. They, they did put together another Alcott volume, um, and I'm not sure what's in it, but uh, I've only done the little women trilogy which i loved actually that was a fun series to do so go back and you can find it if you if you want uh, but this one really focuses on those horrors of the battlefield but he does kind of feign uh, a little bit of ignorance of military affairs uh just saying i don't really know what's going on i was just sort of observing this but it's a uh, it actually in effect in effectively this is a media account of the of the of the war and since all the news about fredericksburg was bad you get the sense it did have a real big impact on the on the the on the union kind of like the the previous the feeling of the previous winter this is, sounds even worse actually the sense you get of of inevitable defeat perhaps um it's not going to be of course till six seven months later that the tide really turns with vicksburg and gettysburg um, we got another uh, view of the battle with uh, Henry Livingmore Abbott's uh, report of the battle. This was a, a letter to his father, and uh, he was in uh, 20th Massachusetts Regiment. So this is an eyewitness account uh, written right after the time. So these, in some ways, are the most valuable documents we have here. This one is quite critical of Burnside, and this is a good example of soldiers preferring McClellan and saying, you know, firing McClellan was a mistake. He wouldn't have made these mistakes. Uh, he writes, uh, The rebels may have lost 3,000. Our loss was 10,000. Burnside, who is a noble man, but not a general, who's going to leave the army entirely. He rode through town the last day without a single cheer. Now, where else does he say? He says somewhere here about McClellan. Yeah. Uh, not a man in the other regiments opened their mouths except to mutter three cheers for McClellan. We can never win another victory till he comes back, and even then, not till after three months of winter quarters, when he'll have time to reorganize the army. So it's, you know, and I think that's one thing to keep in mind with the revolving door of generals is I think probably that was a good thing in that Lincoln could fire people, which it didn't seem Davis was able to do. You had that much more aristocratic army in the South. But he was able to fire people until he found the right commander, which is useful. But it also, you know, you can't just take over the army and begin to move. You got to reorganize it and and reset up your staff and make your plans and and reorganize everything. And it's it's not it takes time to do that. So there are costs to that, and and that might be why Lincoln waited so long to get rid of um, McClellan. Uh, so next we have uh, Clifton Johnson's. Uh, this is another memoir, much later. Um, Battleground Adventures. This was a free black man. So this isn't a soldier. But he was uh, a Cooper living in the area of Fredericksburg. And he's been identified as, as a man named Joseph Lawson. Um, 
even though he took the name. No, Clifton. Sorry, Clifton Johnson. Sorry, I got this wrong. Clifton Johnson was the interviewer who interviewed these men, and they put them together into this book, Battleground Adventures, which might be fun to look at. Um, but all we have here is the colored Cooper is the name, but it is this man Joseph Lawson. And uh, and this is his uh, a f kind of a free black pro-union witness to the Battle of Fredericksburg. Now, since Fredericksburg changes hands over the course of the battle, uh, he's able to interact with both Confederates and Union soldiers uh, during this account. He's able to see the battle from, uh, you know, through the whole thing. And he, he gets pretty close to it. I mean, he's not that distant from it. He's seen actual troop movements and cannons going off near him and things like that. So what we don't have here is maybe any reflection on what the war means for him as a, as a free black uh, living in Virginia. Fredericksburg was, of course, in Virginia. So, uh, But he also speaks to the horrors of it and uh, the young men lying dead that he, that he witnesses. He's pretty horrified by that, or at least he remembers being horrified by that. Um, quote, they had no business to be in the war at their age. Out in front of the stone wall was the Yankees where they'd fallen one poon top of the other. Um, this was a really a gruesome battle uh, for the Union side. And the bodies laid there in the winter and they couldn't get and retrieve the bodies. So they laid there for a long time. Really nasty stuff in this this account. Um, but it's there. There's, there's actually quite a lot of it here in this these documents. For instance, the next two are all about the camp hospitals. Uh, first is Walt Whitman from Specimen Days, where he talk, he has got uh, one section about the battle, and he's got another uh, where he visits the, division, the, the, the brigade and division hospitals, which are treating the wounded. And it sounds pretty bad. Uh, or is it? No cots, seldom even a mattress. It's pretty cold. The ground is frozen hard, and there's occasional snow. And I go around from one case to another. I do not see that I do much good to these wounded and dying, but I cannot leave them. Once in a while, some youngster holds on to me convulsively, and I do what I can for him. At any rate, stop with him and sit near him for hours if he wishes it. Um, yeah, that's, There's not much here on it. It's just a small little vignette, but it's pretty... Uh, it's what you'd expect, I suppose, from a, a, an army hospital at the time. A much better source... Uh, is Alcott's hospital sketches. So she uh, um, volunteered as a nurse um, in D.C., so she was close to Fredericksburg, and so she experienced the wounded from Fredericksburg coming to D.C. Uh, to the, her, the hospital she worked at. And she was there only for a while because she eventually um, she got sick and had to retire from that, but she eventually wrote this book, Hospital Sketches, which... I think it's one of her first books, uh, maybe her first book, but it's uh, it's a great book. It's and the selection you have here is wonderful. Um, you feel just the the horror of the the wounded from Fredericksburg arriving, and she's great on like the smells and the sounds and the pain. She's witnessing the the kind of futility in some cases, the rash decisions doctors have to make, the fact that there's no time. Um, her efforts to kind of comfort soldiers and give them what they can, but she's also overworked and she's not much she can do. It's, it's, it's pretty, pretty tough to read stuff, but the whole book, which I, I read years ago is, is, 
full of great moments like this. Um, there's a section here even about like a, like there's a rebel, wounded rebel there and, and how the other soldiers treat him. Some really wonderful stuff here. I think this is one of my favorite documents in this whole volume, actually. Um, a lot on the amputations, too. And just a great look at the the day to day life of 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 nurses. It'd be a great source if you wanted to look into um, the work and what work was like in these uh, hospitals. Um, so next we have a couple documents which I don't want to say too much about. They're dated like December eighteenth and nineteenth in the aftermath of the Fredericksburg battle, and this deals with cabinet frustrations. Um, Lincoln's trying to call for firmness, but there's a lot of second guessing and cabinet members are kind of struggling against each other and they don't like each other and um so we get orville h brown who is like a staffer we've met him before actually and then we have gideon wells the secretary of the navy who was often commenting on these in his diary so his diary is very very detailed some of these entries i mean it's like a entry for one day and it's like six seven pages like how did he have time to do this also running the navy but he kept a really good account of these uh, cabinet meetings, I guess. I guess maybe it's one of her best sources for that. Um, but this all has to do with Seward's attempt to resign. And, um, and this had a lot to do with like internal back and forth in politics among the cabinet. But it, there's deeper political issues with this. It's really about the radicals upset with Lincoln's uh, way he's handling the, 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 the war. And so the target was the Secretary of State, was Stewart. So uh, the accusation was that Stewart was not aggressive enough in prosecuting the war and maybe pushing the president to be a little bit, uh, to be softer in pushing the war. And, you know, I don't think that evidence isn't really true on that. It seems, he, you know, we've seen Lincoln constantly trying to push McClellan to move. But they wanted to put Chase into as um or make him a more important person in the cabinet so that was really the conflict on the surface between chase and stewart but really it's between the radicals and more moderate republicans or the radicals and lincoln i suppose so that's what it's about and it comes to a head in a handful of cabinet meetings that are documented in these sources and it sounds like lincoln would have had to accept stewart's resignation but for some reason, I'm not quite clear entirely on it, but Chase had to also submit his resignation because of face or some some kind of um, how things looked. And then this allowed Lincoln to just reject both resignations and keep his kind of balance in the cabinet. So it, it kind of works out for Lincoln and he kind of weathers this this conflict. But it's a really good window into the, you know, the behind the scenes cabinet crisis going on, which I, which I think is not insignificant. Uh, it's just maybe something that I'm not that familiar with um so next we have harper's weekly uh, an article called the reverse at fredericksburg which really gets to the despair in the north fears of military dictatorship emerging if defeats keep coming um uh, frustration with burnside and his failures um but somewhat sympathetic too with to burnside just being kind of thrown into this position and being forced to do the impossible but at the same time, there's there's fear that this crisis will lead maybe to the end of, of American democracy. So that's how much despair there was. It's not just about losing the war, but maybe forever losing America and what it what it means to these people. 
Um, the next source we got is George Templeton Strong's diary. Of course, he's got a long diary that covers the war years and after. And this is a nice little document because he's, he's thinking about the Emancipation Proclamation, which he, of course, supports. But he's also talking about uh, the competing resolutions and proclamations by Davis that were like the response to the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, and of course, the Confederate Congress passed laws as a response as well. And he kind of comments on, on that a little bit. Um, I think the most, the most important thing in this document is the, the reflection on what abolitionist means now and what it means later. Of course, we know this, that positions that were radical at one point now seem common sense and obvious, you know, um, the end of slavery, abolitionism, uh, the women's right to vote, gay marriage, all these things seem to us for the most part, uh, We'd all, I think most of us would agree that these are good decisions, but at the time they were held by a minority and they were, those, that minority was seen as radicals and social pariahs and all that. And, and this is what Templeton Strong, George Templeton Strong says about this. He says, uh, this generation is certainly overshadowed by superstition, not yet quite exploded that slaveholding rights possess peculiar sanctity and inviolability and everyone who doubts their justice is an abolitionist. And then an abolitionist is a social pariah, a reprobate, and a caitiff, a leper whom all distant people are bound to avoid and denounce. We shall feel otherwise 10 years hence, unless subjugated meanwhile by the pluck and ferocity of the slaveholders' rebellion. And look back on Northern reverence for slavery and slaveholders, A.D. 1862, even after the long experience of the war with treason allayed in the support of slavery, as we now regard the gross superstitions of 10 centuries ago, or the existing superstitions of Mandingos and Zulu Kafirs. I trust we may not have to remember it as a signal instance of judicial blindness, a paralyzing visitation of divine vengeance on a whole people at the very moment when their national existence depended on their seeing the truth and asserting it. What a great writer! And you know, for this just to be dumped in a diary is—it's is, not really tragic because we have it. But you know, how many, how much great writing is stuck in a diary that no one will, no one will ever read? It's. Um, this is a, a well-crafted statement, it seems to me, that it's hard to dispute with. Um, uh, what else here? Um, oh, something here about Fitzjohn Porter's uh, uh, court-martial over the second bull run. Uh, that's not that interesting, actually, but... He was being court-martialed for some kind of failure of doing his duty during the Second Battle of Bull Run, and, and he's kind of presenting his defense here to uh, Samuel Barlow, uh, who we've, we've met before, too. Um, all right, let's, let's jump ahead here. Here, uh, we have get uh, Jefferson Davis. Like last episode, we had uh, Lincoln's address to Congress, his like, State of the Union. Here we have Jefferson Davis's address to the Mississippi legislature. So this isn't like a State of the Union. This is just a normal like political speech. But uh, really interesting stuff here. Uh, it started out, I was kind of like, not this again, because it was started with a, a long conversation on the justification of independence, which we've seen again and again. And by this point, it seems kind of moot to bring it up anymore, like, you know, there's thousands of dead on both sides. What's, it's not about who was right and who was wrong. Uh, 
at this point. It's about who's going to win on the battlefield, right? It's about who military, who you know, which system is going to win out in this titanic conflict. But he felt the need to go through it and justify it and all that blah. Like I, you don't hear those kinds of voices from the north, I, you know, just you know defending the constitutionality of you know the. You know, like you had before secession, you had all these people arguing for the constitutionality of secession or against it and all that from both sides. Um, but here, the yeah, Dave is still making the same cases about why independence is justified. And it seems to me to be uh, a bit passe by this point. Um, but what's more interesting to me is his criticism of the North. He gets into some really harsh criticism of Northern society as a whole. That are really, I mean, maybe understandable in the context of a war that is deep in resentments and hostilities and, and you know, the trenches were being dug ideologically. That would take a long time to overcome if they ever did. But, and I think maybe some of these assumptions about North, you know, rooted in some of the defenses of slavery. If you remember, some of the defenses of slavery were things like, well, industrial societies worse it's secular and corrupt and and you know the life of workers up there is horrible and all that we've seen that in defenses of slavery um but there's some really interesting rhetoric here uh, i normally didn't like the jeff davis documents but this one there's some spirit here even if it's directed towards a horrible cause uh, our enemies are a traditionalist and homeless race from the time of cromwell to the present moment they have been disturbers of the peace of the world, gathered together by Cromwell from the bogs and fens of Northern Ireland and of England. They commenced by disturbing the peace of their own country. They disturbed Holland, to which they fled, and they disturbed England on their return. They persecuted Catholics in England, and they hunted Quakers and witches in America. Having been hurried into a war with a people so devoid of every mark of civilization, you have no doubt wondered that I have not carried out the policy which I have intended should be our policy of fighting our battles on the fields of our enemy instead of suffering them to fight them on our own. End quote. I mean, that's bull stuff. It's, you know, it's fancy fantasy that the, the South could fight, could have fought this war on northern soil, and it would have been bad. Every time they tried to invade the North, it was a disaster, right? Uh, militarily and strategically. But rhetorically, this is kind of uplifting things to another level, saying these people are like, like he's saying the Puritans, and he's kind of taking the Puritans as a symbol of the whole North, but saying like these people are without civilization and they're just brutal um and they've and he actually blames here i think the people he says that hurried in them into a war so devoid of every mark of civilization he's talking to maybe about people of african descent or abolitionists or some mixture of them um but he's saying we gotta actually destroy them it's not enough for independence we have to obliterate them from the planet almost that's uh bold even in the context of, of, of some military victories uh, throughout 1962. Um, then he gets into another interesting conversation uh, about defending the Conscription Act, which was very controversial. Of course, it was Davis who signed the first conscription law in American history. Um, and it was immediately criticized uh, in the South as being uh, unfair to the poor because it was it did provide an exemption for people who had 20 or more slaves um which kind of led 
led to people thinking this was a poor man's war, uh, rich or rich man's war, poor man's fight, I should say. And he kind of doesn't shy away from this. He says this is necessary, but he also says like the people of property, the wealthy are fighting and we're all fighting together and it, the poor are needed to change civilization. So he's, he deals with class in a very awkward way. I think he doesn't really take the criticism honestly. He doesn't address it really honestly, but he does try to address it. He's aware of this criticism of it being a rich man's war, poor man's fight. He says, It has been said that it exempts the rich from military service and forces the poor to fight the battles of the country. The poor do indeed fight the battles of the country. It is the poor who save nations and make revolutions. But it is true that in the this war, the men of property have but is it true that the men of property have shrunk from the ordeal of the battlefield? And he says, no. Um, and then he says, it wasn't about just policing blacks. It wasn't just about a police force with um, for blacks. But he doesn't really address that argument itself. Um, and he says, oh, everyone's doing their duty and all that, which isn't true. You know, the South was plagued. The Southern army was plagued by desertions and all that. But that's an interesting part of this document was the defense of the conscription act and he makes a lot of really grand claims throughout this this speech about uh you know fighting for freedom uh you know we're being reduced to slavery by the north uh quote the issue of then being will you will you be slaves will you consent to be robbed of your property to be reduced to provincial dependence will you renounce the exercise of those rights with which you are born and with you're transmitted by your own fathers. This, I mean, there's a lot of really well done pathos and in this, in this speech. So, um, yeah, I've, I haven't seen Davis like this in previous documents, uh, by his, by, by him, but this one has some, 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 some fire in it and I'll, I'll give it some credit for that, but, uh, he's just wrong. <laughs> Uh, okay, uh, William Sherman to John Sherman. Uh, this is about the Battle of Chickasaw Bayou in Mississippi. Not much to say about it, but he's just it's just kind of about, they're setting up for the Vicksburg campaign, and he kind of complains about the difficulty of uh, in reaching Vicksburg. Um, maybe we'll have more, have more to say about this in the next volume, I'm sure. Um, oh, the next document's great, though. It's a, it's a good one. It's a... Uh, it's a letter by lawyers. No, it's a letter by clergy, sorry. It's a legal letter by clergymen in the Union Army complaining. Um, it's a petition. It's in Arkansas, um, but they're complaining about the way, and of course it would be in the South because that's where most of the contraband camps would have been and armies deeper in the South. And he's saying, uh, basically, um, this is to a general. This is a petition to the general um, who's the commander of the whole Missouri district and he's saying the black men who are serving in these contraband camps are being misused and this is just one and i wonder how many documents like this help build momentum towards the decision not just to use these people as laborers and camp followers and things like that but actually to arm them and make them you know of course they weren't treated equally in the army they weren't paid the same until after the war right but at the time they weren't paid the same and certainly not treated as equals on the battle uh, in the army itself in terms of promotion and, and all that. But, but nevertheless, the idea that 
giving them guns and putting them in the front lines of the battles was a response to claims like this, that you were basically using these people as slaves and mistreating them in, in pretty horrible ways, leaving orphans, abandoning orphans, uh, beating people, um, keeping the separate hospitals and having the black hospitals, the conditions are so much worse. I didn't know about these contraband camp hospitals, segregated hospitals. Um, I'm sure someone's written something about it, but it's something I didn't know anything about. And it's, I'm sure there's interesting stories to dig up and about the dig out about that. Um, you know, people being killed, you know, dying, maybe not getting killed, but dying of neglect and mistreatment and being left helpless and starving. And it's a short little petition, but there's a lot of powerful uh, things mentioned here. And they're saying, we, you got to treat these people better and we need to regulate this better, improve the conditions in the contraband camps. Um, all right, next. Oh, next we have an account of the Battle of Stones River, which is was another bloody battle of this of December 1862. Fredericksburg gets all the attention, I suppose, but this one was out west. Uh, this was between uh, Rosencrans, who was a, a Union commander in the west, and Braxton Bragg. So remember Braxton Bragg, he was the one who issued that document. Uh, this was after the invasion of Kentucky failed, right? So there's a little campaign in the middle of Tennessee. And this kind of clears out the war in the middle of Tennessee. Um, and this was another really bloody battle. Maybe not quite as nasty as Fredericksburg, but considering the numbers involved in this battle, pretty, pretty vicious. 12,000 uh, casualties among, 13,000 casualties among the Union, 1,500, more than 1,500 dead. 12,000 catches on the Confederate side and 1,300 dead. Um, and that's out of a, so that's uh, 25,000 casualties almost among a uh, fighting force. This is combined of a fighting force of, of 80,000. So, you know, like a, like a lot of these battles, a third of the people would be captured or wounded or killed. And, and many of those people wounded would die later, right, of, of wounds. Ugh. Really, really bloody battle. But, um, but it was successful in kind of uh, securing um, Central Tennessee, which, of course, opens up the door for the 1963 campaigns, uh, which are going to put pressure on Atlanta and, and, and set up that campaign, which is so important for the war. So, um, but here, that's about the battle itself. But here we have Ira S. Uh, Owens, who wrote an account called Green Country in the War. And this was... A, a union account of of the battle. Um, this was followed by a Confederate account by Lot T. Young, who was a, a member of the so-called Orphan Brigade, bigger brigade of 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 Kentucky Confederates who couldn't return to their home states, so they're called the Orphans. Um, and this is just a Confederate point of view of that battle, which of course the Confederates lost. Um, so we're getting to the end here of 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 the volume we're actually into january 63 a little bit uh one document we have a couple documents about uh um resignation letters and resignation attempts one being uh, burnside's effort to resign after fredericksburg and he just said, kind of says we need to have confidence in leadership um and we don't have that right now um and then also halleck another general is uh 
tries to resign and Lincoln writes a really nasty letter to him, but it's withdrawn. So that letter was never delivered, but we have it as a record. Um, then we have the Emancipation Proclamation, the final one, which is just kind of a restating the, the original Emancipation Proclamation, but making it have the established firm, firm law behind it, or at least war powers law. Um, but he does say something here. I don't know if this is the original one. I, I think it might might have been. Maybe no. I don't think it is. He does say, although the all these slaves are free, he doesn't encourage them to engage in violence. He says he writes, and I hereby enjoin all upon the people so declared to be free to abstain from all violence unless in necessary self-defense. And I recommend it to them in all cases when allowed they labor faithfully for reasonable wages. I guess is he still being cautious about the. I mean, maybe he doesn't want unnecessary loss of life if, if if he just or doesn't want unnecessary. He doesn't want to encourage people in a hopeless situation to rebel and end up dead or, you know, suffering in some way. That might be part of it. It might be also there's still concerns among some slaveholding unionists. Um, I don't know, but it's a it's a, it's a paragraph that's that's struck me. Um then we got uh, Benjamin Rush Plummy writing to Abraham Lincoln. Plummy was an abolitionist, a Quaker. And he wrote to the president just praising him for the Emancipation Proclamation, talking about celebrations in Philadelphia and how, they were, how the proclamation was received there among free blacks and others. Um, but he does say, we don't believe you really believe this talk about colonization. Um, and he says this, he talks, he emphasizes colonization is not the solution to... Um, this this the status of post of, of blacks after the war um where does he say this um, oh yeah here the black people all trust you they believe you do that you desire to do them justice they do not believe that you wish to expurgate them or enforce upon them any disability but that you cannot do all that you would um but more or less is the positive document, just uh, giving you a sense of, of what that meant, what the emancipation did mean to people. Um, free slaves who ran away, living as free people. Um, then we have uh, Abraham Lincoln writing to John A. McClernand, um, which is, he was kind of responding to a letter where about concerns about the Emancipation Proclamation, and he says this this must stand if nothing else. This is is this is what the war is going to be about, um, in part. And if we're going to win this war, this has to stand. We can't move back from this now. It's done. And I think that's a good place to to close this volume. I think the editors made a good choice in closing in a document like that rather than literally at the end of 1862. So um, I guess that's it. Some. Good stuff. I guess two battles, Fredericksburg and Stones River, and then um, a lot about the Emancipation Proclamation, a lot about the the feelings of of the North and the aftermath of Fredericksburg, uh, the trauma of the war for many, um, but ending on a more, I guess, hopeful note, I suppose. So that's going to close this volume, and I'm going to come back to look at 1863 and then the final volume which i think this next volume gets us into a little bit 1864 then the final volume will cover the, the final year or so of the war uh then but i'm not going to do those yet i'm going to as i said look at sinclair lewis 
Um, and we'll start with Main Street, which will be like probably four episodes or five, maybe four, uh, which is it's um, something I started reading before and um, I'm excited to, to take another stab at. So uh, that's going to be it for now. So let me know what you think about any of this. Send me your thoughts and uh, comments to 100pagescast at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter. Or just leave a comment on this, uh, um, on wherever you listen to podcasts. Send a review to iTunes or whatever. I appreciate all your help. Sorry for not uploading as often as I used to, but um, I've just been busy. Life be that way sometimes. So uh, that's going to be it for now. I'll see you around. Thanks for listening.